Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Report. With us today is Daniel McAdams, our co-host. Daniel, welcome to the program. Good morning, Dr. Paul. How are you this morning? Very good, and we have a good program today, a good guest, somebody we've worked with in the past, and uh, he has studied hard because he's had to deal with a lot of people <laughs> that we never dealt with directly. I did a, a little bit in Washington, but he actually, behind the scenes, dealt with a very important things, especially where we, when we got to know him, was during the Bush years, yeah. you know, and there was a lot of mischief going on there, and he helped us sort that out. And that individual is Scott Ritter, who is a very well-known person, and some people call him a great whistleblower, and whether that's a good term or not, all I know is he wanted to tell us the truth, and that's what we seek, and that's what we try to do on this program. Scott, welcome to our program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, good. And for our, yeah, for our viewers who know that uh, Scott Ritter was a former U.S. Marine Intelligence Officer. He was a chief U.N. weapons inspector for Iraq, uh, resigned in protest at what had happened to the uh, weapons inspector team and how it had been treated. So he's got a long history of going against the grain. And Scott, you've been pretty high profile uh, on the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, I, you know, there's a handful of people that are challenging the narrative, yourself, Colonel McGregor, uh, Larry Johnson, and a few others who are really standing out there. Um, the first thing that I was going to ask you about is something that just happened, and that's President Biden. He, he went out and he made an announcement, another week, another $800 million for Ukraine. Uh, and this one also has $500 million in economic aid and $800 million in military aid. I think what he said, for the first time, the U.S. is planning to send heavy artillery, also some modified drones to be used, I think, for targeting uh, some howitzers, some tactical trucks to drive the howitzers. Looking at this massive amount of aid, Scott, over the past few weeks, A, what do you, what do you make of it? And B, do you think it's going to make a difference? Well, clearly, um, this is far too little, far too late. I mean, the time to uh, have armed uh, Ukraine uh, to a level sufficient of uh, hopefully deterring a Russian military attack, not defeating it, uh, was before the Russians invaded. Um, I can say with absolute certainty that even if this aid makes it to the battlefield, it will have zero impact on the battle. And Joe Biden knows this. His generals know this. Um, you know, the, the, it's impossible for an army, even one as capable as the Ukrainian army, to receive new equipment um, and then try to train their people to a level of tactical proficiency um, so that it has you know, a, a bearing on ongoing operations. This won't happen. Um, more than likely, most of it will be destroyed before it gets to the front lines. And once it gets to the front lines, and this is the harsh reality, asking troops to use new equipment for the first time in combat is a death sentence. So all Joe Biden is doing by sending this equipment in is guaranteeing uh, the death of those Ukrainian soldiers who seek to use it. And even if the equipment does become operational and is used in anger against the Russians, um, you know, the death of more Russians isn't going to change the reality of what's happening on the battlefield. Uh, the Russians are winning, they're going to win, and there's literally nothing that can be done by the Ukrainian military or the United States or Europe to, to stop this. All we're going to do is kill more people. And I would leave this with the American people. Um, you know, there was a lot of anger at Iran 
in the in the 2000s, especially a general named Qasim Soleimani, uh, for carrying out operations that killed hundreds of Americans. We were so mad, in fact, that we assassinated Qasim Soleimani. Do you not understand how angry the people of Russia are for us providing weapons, the sole purpose of which is to kill Russians? Don't we understand the blowback that is, is going to accrue? And this is just, you know, a failed effort uh, as part of a larger failed policy. It's it's a travesty that Biden's doing. It's done for purely political reasons and will have no impact on the battlefield. Okay, uh, good, good introduction. Uh, Scott, I want to ask a question which is more generalized. I see you uh, uh, to, uh, finished college in uh, Franklin and Marshall. I happen to be pretty close to Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. But after that, I understand it was a short time after that, you, uh, you became a Marine and you've been involved ever since in many, many different capacities. And I'm always curious about people that has gone through this. Has there been a transition or by the time you were getting out of college, were you well grained in, uh, you know, the philosophy, general philosophy? In, in, what we talk about is the non-intervention that, that we share with you, that we should be doing a lot less of this rather than looking for wars to fight. But uh, was there a transition uh, for, for you, uh, change in attitude, say, with the CIA or United Nations or overall foreign policy? Or uh, were you basically there when you left college? No, uh, look, I was a child of the Cold War. My father was a career Air Force officer, and I was raised uh, around the world, uh, including uh, Turkey and Germany, uh, West Germany, which were on the front lines of the Cold War at the time. I, I grew up uh, knowing that I was going to join the US military for the sole purpose of confronting the Soviet threat. Um, I, I mean, you know, we could joke about it, but there was a saying, a kill a commie for mommy. I believed it. Better better dead than red. I believed it. I, I was joining the Marine Corps so I could uh, close with and destroy the Soviet enemy through firepower maneuver. I was a Russian history major in college, and uh, I became an intelligence officer uh, because of my of my Russian history background. Um, and, I, you know, I was enthusiastic about this. I think there was a transition, so to speak, the initial transition was came in 1988 after I had trained so hard to kill the Soviets. I actually was sent to the Soviet Union for two years to implement a uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, a, 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 a treaty to get rid of uh, intermediate short-range nuclear missiles. And at that time, I, uh, I learned that the the Soviets were people just like we were, and that um, you know when you when you learn to fight somebody, you learn to hate them, you learn to dehumanize them. And by living over there, just the opposite occurred. And I realized that maybe uh, we'd have a better luck as a nation learning how to be friends with these people than trying to kill them. But uh, I still believed in, you know, my my country. I went to war in the Gulf War. I fought against Iraq's army, uh, which had invaded Kuwait, and I believe that that was a just war. But it was, the, the transition took place from 1991 to 1998 when I was a chief weapons inspector in Iraq. There I was told by my government that the job was disarmament. But in reality, the job was regime change. And I realized that my government was fully capable of lying, of, uh, of, of needlessly putting people's lives at risk, including mine. Um, and at that point in time, I, I, I lost faith. I lost, uh, I lost faith in the CIA, which uh, no longer appeared to me to be looking for the truth. And I lost faith in my government, which appeared to be hell-bent on going to war for no reason. Um, and, and since that time, I've been very skeptical 
of uh, the policies of my government because I no longer accept at face value uh, any uh, contention on the part of the U.S. government that we're doing this for the good of the world. Um, I've learned that the U.S. government is a very selfish entity that is willing to sacrifice lives, ours and theirs, um, not in the cause of peace, but in the cause of pursuing a policy that's solely to the benefit of the United States. And when you have traveled the world like I have, you realize that the world is a very big place populated by billions of people who aren't Americans uh, and deserve as much respect as we give ourselves. Uh, very, very good, Scott. And uh, what, what I see in, in your experience and, and your contribution is that now you're part of the truth seekers group. <laughs> and uh, with your experience, uh, you know, there's more cre credibility than those who never con were concerned themselves or never had this same experience. So that, that is what is important. That's why, and I think that's why your contribution now is still important because uh, what's so many, not enough, People are seeking the truth, and there's a lot of confusion. You know, just think of the people who tried to seek the truth over the war against COVID, you know, this kind of thing. It just goes on and on. Daniel has a question for you. Well, before I ask it, Scott, I'm going to make an announcement to our viewers. I'm sure all of you are enjoying what Scott has to say uh, and uh, appreciating it. I'm going to announce now that Scott Ritter is our first announced speaker in our June 4th conference in Houston. So you'll get to hear a lot more of what Scott has to say. Scott joined us back in 2017 when we focused on whistleblowers. So he's coming back, he's coming out to Houston. So you're gonna to wanna to get your tickets. I'm gonna go ahead and put a link in the description of how you can get those tickets. But Scott, you mentioned lies, the US government lies. And we're seeing, and I don't know if, you're, if you feel the same way, but the narrative control in this Russia-Ukraine war here at home, to me seems way more stringent than during the, the uh, Iraq war too. Uh, it's really more stringent than everything, anything I've seen and in fact, You've, you've come up against it, not only the mainstream media, but the social media. If you dare challenge the narrative that's been put out by the U.S. government, by the intelligence services, and we know that, uh, as we talked before the show, the NBC report from last week that the CIA and the intelligence community says, we're knowingly putting out false information uh, for people to see. So knowing this, you've been kicked off of Twitter for challenging the narratives. Is this narrative control, this war on us, here at home for the narrative control. Have you seen anything like it? No, I haven't, and it's it's deeply disturbing. Look, you know, I can chuckle about Twitter because my life doesn't revolve around Twitter. Um, but, you know, that being said, what happened should have every American deeply concerned, and, I, and I'll explain why. You know, when we talk about democracy and what makes democracy great, you know, it, especially American democracy, it's the, the freedoms that we enjoy, the freedoms that, uh, that that we embrace, we cherish, uh, that are set forth in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, and one of these freedoms is freedom of speech. It's the First Amendment. Um, and, and, and what makes an Amer the American democracy uh, having the greatest potential to, to do good for, for the collective people is the fact that we encourage informed debate, discussion, and dialogue so that we can empower ourselves with knowledge and information so that we can better hold to account those whom we elect to higher office in our name. But as soon as you start suppressing this debate, this discussion, this dialogue, um, you, know, you, you destroy this, this foundation upon which democracy is built. And you know, you, people need to learn to trust the American people. The American people are fully capable of making their own decisions. They're fully capable of receiving uh, different inputs 
and deciding which ones they want to embrace, which ones they want to reject. But the American people don't need Twitter, Facebook, Google, or the American Congress telling them what they can and can't look at. Uh, and what we've seen since 2016 is a deliberate effort by Congress and social media under Congress to um, to to eliminate dissent, eliminate uh, dissenting points of view. Uh, they call it disinformation. I mean, you know, that, that they they belittle a dissenting voice. They belittle contrarian approach by calling it disinformation and implying that somehow it's based on lies and deceit and misinformation. No, it's not. It's just a different way of looking at facts that everybody should be able to have access to so that they can empower themselves. You know, I'm not trying to tell people how to think. I'm not trying to tell people what to know. I'm simply putting some data out there and people can consider it. They can dismiss it if they don't like it. They can embrace it if they do like it. That's the American way. And when you start shutting down these voices of dissent, these opposing viewpoints, you are destroying American democracy, and people need to understand that. Uh, Scott, I want to ask you about how you've been treated by the man in the street. Uh, you know, in this uh, battle over COVID, we find out that neighbors and friends and sometimes relatives sort of turn on people and get obsessed, and they've been influenced by the propaganda, and they actually get angry and will shout, and you, you see those fights on the airplanes and things like that, which it, which it has created. And we do know that the officials that uh, understand exactly what you're doing, you're telling the truth, and people who, uh, you know, are officially condemning what you're doing, you know, can't stand the truth because it exposes them what they're doing. And so, therefore, uh, I can understand that. But what about somebody you don't know well or somebody spontaneous? Have you noticed a shift, or do people either totally ignore what you're doing, or do they, do they know your position and it's challenging to the status quo? Uh, what kind of result, uh, reactions do you get from the average person? Well, I mean, you know, if people know me, um, then they respect uh, my background and they respect uh, my resume and they respect my right to say what I'm saying, even if they disagree. Right. If people don't know me, um, you know, first of all, you know, there's there's two two worlds we live in. There's uh, the internet world. Um, where people become very heroic uh, behind the, uh, the screen and the keyboard. And uh, there have been, I, I've been threatened. Uh, people want to kill me. People want to kill my family. Um, uh, they want to do horrible things um, because they, there's the courage of distance and the courage of uh, anonymity. Uh, when people meet me in person, um, you know, I'm getting older, but I'm, I'm big enough uh, that uh, they, they, they don't tend to threaten to kill me to my face. Um, uh, and, and, and frankly speaking, I'm, I'm not really a, a, a bad person. I'm not a nasty person. And I'm more than willing to listen to somebody tell me why they disagree with me as long as they do it civilly. And then we can engage in a, con a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, even if they don't agree with me, they walk away saying that was respectful. That was civil. And uh, I enjoyed the interaction. I learned something. Um, so, I, you know, that, and, and that tends to be the case. I very rarely have somebody come up and, um, the fact is, I've never had somebody come up and just shout at me or get angry to my face. I have people come up and say they disagree with me and they, they're concerned because they feel like maybe I'm, a, you know, a, a voice of Russian disinformation or um, somehow the Iraqis bought me or something of that nature. But by the time, if they take the time to interact 
talk in a civil manner. Um, again, I may not win them over, although I often do, but at the end, we shake hands and we part, uh, if not friends, we part friendly. Great. But you talk about trying to shut down debate, and that is what they try to do. That's why saying that you're Putin's puppet and you're repeating Russian talking points. You know, where is the book of Russian talking points? I wouldn't mind reading it because, uh, you know, and you talk about 2016. That's when the Ron Paul Institute was first accused uh, in the Washington Post of using Russian talking points or what have you. So the idea is to shut down debate. But, you know, you're close to one issue where we're talking about the possibility of actually literally shutting down debate. And that's with uh, Chilean-American journalist Gonzalo Lira, who went missing... Uh, on uh, April 15th, he was living in Kharkov in Ukraine. He was a vocal critic of the current narrative with regard to the war. And he brought a lot to the table, a lot of experience, especially living in Ukraine. He's disappeared. What do you make of this? What do you make, first of all, of the silence in the U.S. media? Can you imagine? I think you made this point, Scott. Can you imagine if a New York Times journalist uh, went missing in Putin's Russia, uh, you know, possibly dead. Uh, it would be all over the headlines, all over Drudge Report and what have you. We haven't heard anything about Gonzalo. What, what can you tell us about that and what does it say about our media? Well, first of all, I, I will say this, that prior to, say, mid-February of, uh, of this year, I had never heard of Gonzalo Lira. Um, I was introduced to him by others who had picked up on the work that he had started in um, in Kharkov following the, uh, the 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 Russian special military operation, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, and he was he voiced that questioning um, much of the mainstream narrative, and, and it was a voice that had some credibility given the fact that he was on the ground in, in Kharkov and could cite you know personal experiences, etc. Um, I actually had two interviews with him. Uh, I, I did a what's called a Twitter Spaces. And then I did a uh, one on his YouTube channel. And uh, at the time, he had said that he's being singled out um, and he was concerned about his security. And I, I, I mentioned to him after we did a 77-minute YouTube live stream um, uh, podcast, I said, you know, it might not be a good idea for you to be streaming live from Kharkiv because um, the bad guys can geolocate you. And if they're truly trying to get you, um, you know, you're, you're only helping them. And he said, no, I'm taking precautions. I'm, I'm being careful. But um, he went off the air. And um, he had said if he's if he disappears for more than 12 hours, that people can just assume that he's been arrested. Uh, he's now been um, silent for six days. And um, and it's not just he that's silent. Um, it's mainstream media. Again, you know, as, as, as you pointed out, I've, I've said if a New York Times reporter went missing, there would be outrage. You know, there. look at the situation when uh, Jamal Khashoggi um, disappeared in the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul, the instantaneous outrage, yeah. the demand for justice, the demand for accountability. And Gonzalo was an American Chilean citizen. There's been silence from the American government. Why isn't the Biden administration demanding that Zelensky carry out a full investigation? I mean, there is some credible allegations that, um, you know, that, 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 that Gonzalo Lira has been taken down by an Azov-affiliated unit within the Ukrainian security services. Why isn't the mayor of Kharkov being asked to account for these services? Um, you know, these are things that would happen if a mainstream journalist had gone missing. Uh, but, you know, Gonzalo Lira had a following that it was larger than many mainstream journalists. He had an impact on the narrative that was greater than many mainstream journalists. Uh, and his voice being missed 
will be felt greater than the voice being missed of any mainstream journalist. Uh, but he's being his disappearance is being ignored. It's not just a disappearance. I mean, we know that the Ukrainian government just doesn't doesn't just arrest people; they torture people and they murder people. So there's there's a good likelihood that if he has been detained by the Ukrainian government, um, we can imagine the worst. And again, it's you know we may not be able to save Gonzalo Lira. But we should be able to speak out in a way that expresses outrage over the suppression of an American journalist. And um, it's not happening, which means all journalists are at risk. And that's one thing that the mainstream media needs to reflect on, that if you tolerate the uh, suppression, the arrest and the murder of a, uh, you know, of a YouTube journalist, um, you're tolerating the same thing for somebody who works for The New York Times, The Washington Post or CNN. You know, uh, I went into the military under a little different circumstances as you, Scott. And uh, about the time you were being, you, you were born and, little, and you were very young, uh, the uh, Cuban crisis was occurring. And I got, uh, you know, I was in the residency, medical residency. And I got that little notice that I will be in the military. So it's a little bit different. And uh, I tried to do the best job. But what I'm interested in is what happened in the 60s, because I saw it, experienced it, and was very much aware of it because the Cold War was going on. But I was, I'm interested in what's happening uh, now and, and what did happen on the college campuses. To change foreign policy was actually, you know, ev eventually there's leadership. We need to talk about this. But then you can, then you have to get a, a sort of a consensus with the people, you know, objecting to it. And I think that's occurring with the people being annoyed by the lockdowns on COVID. The people are waking up and the, and the leaders led the charge. But right now, uh, and I found favorable support uh, where when I was completely surprised, uh, you know, uh, when I was campaigning nationally on the college campuses. But are, do they allow you to speak on a campus? Uh, have you had exposure uh, to young people and see if uh, and how they respond? Because I, I thought when I finished all that, that, that young people seem to have a more open mind than somebody that might, that might be working for the military industrial complex. I have not been on college campuses lately. When I, when I did speak on colleges, college campuses, I was always very well received. Um, but it was, uh, you know, different circumstances. Right now, I would say that the the way the American public has been brainwashed about so-called Russian disinformation um, has has served as, uh, you know, has created a chilling effect uh, for universities or colleges bringing somebody on who has been labeled um, as a you know a, a Russian uh, a spread of Russian disinformation and. I've been labeled this, which is ironic, um, but nonetheless, it's that's the case. The other thing is, you know, I don't like to bring politics into this, but the the reality is, you know, some of the most vocal uh, voices of dissent on the American campus comes from the more um, progressive or left wing uh, groups. Uh, but these are the same groups that have been captured by the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is the one leading the charge. Um, you know about Russian disinformation, using that as a as a as a shield to to protect itself from the fact that they just have bad policy. Uh, you know, and, and, and to be honest, you know what they call Russian disinformation more often than not is truth, is fact, is reality. 
um, and the Democrats don't want to uh, want to acknowledge that. So in order to prevent people from discussing truth, fact, and reality, uh, they've labeled it Russian disinformation. And I think that this has a chilling effect on on American campuses, especially from um, the more liberal, progressive, uh, you know, wing of that. Um, you know, conservatives um, have, have always, you know. I think been more quiet on the campus, and so uh, you know their their voice isn't being heard as uh, as loudly as say the left, which is historically had a a, a willingness to uh, shout a little bit louder. <laughs> Wonderful. I have one last question, Scott. Um, before we break it up, we could probably go on a lot longer. We appreciate your time, but you know, not long ago, the media uh, was full of stories about how the Azov Battalion in Ukraine had a Nazi problem. <laughs> Uh, and we've, I mean, I've seen the tattoos, I've seen the flags, I've seen the insignia. This is not a people that are interested in historical re recreation of, of historic facts. These are serious people. Um, but people also compare, and, and this, these are backed by the U.S., obviously, now. People compare the Azov Battalion with al-Nusra Front in Syria, which is a group that the U.S. also backed, which was another word for al-Qaeda in Syria. Why do you think the U.S. is always seems to be in the business of supporting extremist groups? Well, I mean, there's a, there's an old saying: the uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so um, the fact that the Azov Battalion and the odious ideology that it represents um, has been focused on attacking ethnic Russians uh, in Ukraine, um, and now that Ukraine is in conflict with Russia, um, the United States has uh, done what it always does, is which is suppress the reality of these groups um, and empower them so that they can fight um, against, you know, the enemy we have identified. But you know, most Americans, I, I it, it's difficult. I think to have Americans try to identify with um, Islamic fundamentalism because. You know, it, it, we don't have a direct um, history of work. We know what happened on 9-11. We know what, what's happened around the world. But unless you had family members in the tower at the Pentagon or on the airplane, you know, it, it, it doesn't resonate. Almost every American has a family member that fought in World War II. Um, many of those people went over and, uh, you know, crossed the beaches on Normandy. Um, they, they went on to fight in the Battle of the Bulge. And the enemy was Nazi Germany. And we were... We recognized the enemy. We identified who the enemy was, and we knew what needed to happen to them. Um, and yet, for some reason, we've turned a blind eye to uh, to the Azov Battalion and the odious neo-Nazi uh, ideology that they embrace. And it's not just the Azov Battalion. When the Ukrainian government declares Stepan Bandera, who was a Ukrainian nationalist who fought alongside Adolf Hitler during World War II, as their national hero, that means that this ideology has been mainstreamed. It's not just the ideology of a minority. The entire Ukrainian government has identified with it. And that's a problem because we're supporting them, which means we're supporting the people that our grandfathers went overseas to eliminate. Very good. And, and Scott, we will be finishing up, but I, I want to give you a chance to uh, tell our audience how they can come up with you. I guess we can't say, well, I'll just check you out on Twitter. <laughs> no, I better not say that. That's a, that's a bad word. <laughs> but, but anyway, I want to give you a chance to do that. But, uh, you know, I see the uh, Ron Paul Institute 
for which Daniel has done a great job on, as us looking for the truth, and people like you help us, you know, to guide us that way, but then we have to uh, spread the truth. And that, of course, is why we have conferences, and we try to get around the obstacles, and that's why we're so delighted that you'll be there on, on June 4th. But is there another way, if, if some of our viewers would right now say, you know, I'd like to keep up more on a regular basis uh, on, on, on what Scott's doing, can you, can you give them a way they might be able to do that? Well, I'll be the first to say that I'm not the greatest um, practitioner of uh, online social media. Twitter was uh, was 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 an experiment that my daughter got me involved in a couple <laughs> years ago, and and it, and it was working. Um, it, it was very effective. Uh, I use Facebook for my family, so it's not really a uh, a, a way to, to do professional discussion. I did, after the Twitter suspension, open up a uh, an account on a uh, similar service called Telegram. And I post stuff on there, but um, you know, right now, I, this is one of the reasons why I, um, you know, do not not just I enjoy being on with you, but I, and I know you guys. I, I consider you guys, you know, to be friends. But I I haven't turned down a legitimate request for an interview yet, because um, if I can't go on Twitter to spread, you know, what I'm saying, I can at least go on whatever platform people have to and share my insights with them. So um, if if you don't want to go on Telegram and, and, and follow me, and it would be um, Scott Ritter, you know, at Scott Ritter on Telegram, um, just just Google my name, and I'm going to pop up somewhere because I've been giving a lot of interviews. <laughs> very, very good. And once again, I, I want to make sure you know how much we appreciate you coming on today also uh, and making plans to see you in uh, on June 4th, and that's going to be great. But uh, once again, I want to uh, express our appreciation to our viewing audience for tuning in today, and I hope they return to the Liberty Report soon.